It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. Machines have no friendship to offer, and yet we long for conversation, companionship, and even communion with the inanimate. Has the simulation of empathy become empathy enough? The simulation of communion, communion enough? Who do we become when we talk to machines? These are among the questions Sherry Turkle poses in this Aspen lecture. Turkle is a professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT. She's interested in the subjective side of people's relationships with technology. She says we are at a robotic moment, not because we have made robots that are ready to be our companions, but because we are willing to be theirs. Turkle's latest book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, was published earlier this month. Her other books include The Second Self and Alone Together. Here is Sherry Turkle. So I've been um, studying, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be here today and talking about this. Uh, I've been studying conversation um, and its role in our lives for about five years now. Arguably, I've been studying it for a lot longer than this, but focusing on conversation for five years. And um, what have I found out? I've uh, found out that conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we do, and that we're not doing enough of it because our technology is kind of taking us elsewhere. I love that word, elsewhere. I've written a book about it <laughs> called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Um, and uh, the book is coming out in October, on October 6th. W what have I found out from studying conversation? Um, well, many things. I, I found out, as I said in my opening remarks, that it's where empathy is born. And I found out that it's part of a virtuous circle. Um, empathy is part of that circle, but the circle doesn't end there. Because conversations with others, where the conversations where empathy is born, advance self-reflection. Those are the conversations with ourselves that begin during development, but that continue through life. So conversation, self-reflection, creativity, Productivity, they're all kind of woven together in this virtuous circle that includes conversation, empathy, and self-reflection. But these days, we have so many ways of connecting, so many ways of connecting, that usually without noticing, it's not as though somebody says, you know, I'm going to stop that self-reflection and empathy stuff. You know, it's not like that. Just usually without noticing, we begin to find ways around conversation. So we send an email or a text instead of talking face to face. We don't apologize. This is very big. We don't apologize face to face, but we type I'm sorry and we hit send. Now why? We say convenience, but what's behind that? There are kind of other reasons. It's not just convenience. We like to edit, and this is so big, we like to edit our words before we send them. We have this fantasy from the earliest ages. 
we have this fantasy that we can get things right. We like to have our communications when we think we have time for them. We're so overwhelmed that we like to feel we can be less overwhelmed if we can kind of time shift our lives and we can time shift our lives if we can control our time in electronic communications, a way of controlling our time. So it all adds up to a flight from conversation, at least from the kinds of conversation, because people are obviously still talking, but it adds up to a flight from a certain kind of conversation. And that one, those, are again, open-ended, spontaneous, where you let yourself be vulnerable. And it turns out that we run into trouble when those kinds of conversations become fewer and further between. Because those are the conversations where empathy is born, creativity, self-knowledge, there's a thriving of business success, creativity, productivity. It's in those more spontaneous, open-ended, vulnerable conversations where those kinds of things happen most readily. So this flight from conversation, or from that special kind of conversation, is really quite consequential. Um, but it's tough to face these consequences. It's tough to face these consequences. We really don't want to. So with this flight, I see us, and I see us through my research, which is interviewing people and being a fly on the wall and being an ethnographer and watching them in families and businesses and social settings. Um, I see us on a, what I call a voyage of forgetting, a voyage of forgetting about the importance of conversation. And it has many stations, kind of stations of the cross, stations of this voyage. But today I'm going to talk about one particular station. I'm going to choose kind of curious station. I'm going to choose the last station. And it's of particular interest because I think that exploring this station can mark a moment of hope. It can mark the moment in which we stop forgetting. It's the moment of the end of our forgetting. It's kind of the station at the end of the line. It's like we've denigrated conversation, we've degraded conversation, and this station is the ultimate in denigrating and degrading conversation. And sometimes when you reach the ultimate, you say, whoa, you know, what have I been doing? And you look back on the other things you've done, and it kind of puts it into new relief. So exploring this final station, I hope, can help us come back to ourselves. Now, you know, you've read the title of my talk, so, you know, what is this final station? It's when we turn to a new kind of machine or imagine turning to a new kind of machine for the conversations of companionship. That's what I'm going to be talking about. So last night, or the night before, Sunday night, there's the program Humans that just debuted on television. Lots of movies out there about artificial intelligences that'll be our friends and our, if not our lovers, be babysitters. My colleagues at MIT are developing robots on the market in September that'll be your kids' 
friends and companions. And I mean, we're, we're at the moment now that these things are both hitting the culture, certainly hitting the imaginative culture, are starting to come a little bit more real and not just science fiction, and will become even more so. A point of terminology, I use the term the robotic moment because I think we're in the robotic moment. But I want to make it clear that it's not because we've already built all of these robots that are there and can be our friends. It's because we are ready for them, which is a big distinction. It's not because I'm saying that all these robots that are about to be marketed to you as friends and companions really can be your friends and companions. We are at the robotic moment because we're kind of, oh, really? A robot that can babysit my child? Hey, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try that. That's the robotic moment. It's a moment of our readiness, not the fact that the robots are really ready, in my terms, to take on this role. So I've said we're at the robotic moment, not because we've made a machine or a robot that could be a friend, but because we're willing to accept what machines can offer as sufficient unto the day. And even before we make the robots, we remake ourselves as people who are ready to be their companions. And there you get my title. Who do we become when we talk to machines or contemplate this new kind of talking to machines? What do we forget when we talk to machines or contemplate this new kind of talking to machines? And how can we remember ourselves? So those are the things that I'm going to be talking about today. So let me begin uh, with a story. I was recently on a radio show about Siri with a panel of engineers and social scientists. And the topic turned to how much people love to talk to Siri. Part of the general phenomenon that people feel uninhibited when they talk to a machine because they like the feeling of no judgment. Um, one of the social scientists on the program, actually a psychiatrist, suggested that soon a souped up and somewhat smoothed out Siri uh, would soon be able to serve a role as a psychiatrist. Um, it didn't seem to bother him, and I mentioned you know, my, this was my little role in the program. It didn't seem to bother him that Siri, in the role of a psychiatrist, would be counseling people about their lives without having lived a life. If Siri, according to him, could behave like a psychiatrist, he said, it could be a psychiatrist. If no one minded the difference between the as-if and the real thing, let the machine take the place of the person. Now, how many people have seen the imitation game with Benedict Cumberbatch? Well, you're familiar with this argument. This is essentially the Turing test argument for a machine, whether a machine um, is intelligent. If a machine can fool you into thinking that it's a person, it is considered intelligent, and basically this is the Turing test for can a machine be a psychiatrist. It's a behavioral uh, test, and this is the pragmatism of the robotic moment. And my research shows that people are ready for it. 
So here I'm interviewing a 16-year-old talking about the advantages of using robots as confidants. She's heard that in, in China, Microsoft has um, released a very souped-up Siri that actually will engage you in very, very conversation-y conversation about girlfriend. I mean, it's souped up. So it doesn't, instead of saying, oh, I don't really like to talk about that, it, really, it goes there. You know, it goes there. So here is, she's heard about it, and here is her comment on how she thinks this is a good idea. She says, I like the idea. And in my view, the reason she likes it is because it's a relationship without risk. It offers the illusion of companionship without the demands of intimacy. And here's what she says. There are some people who've tried to make friends, but they've fallen through so badly that they give up. So when they hear this idea, and of course when she talks about they, she's talking about herself. So when they hear this idea about robots being made to be companions, well, it's not going to be like a human and have its own mind to walk away or ever leave you or anything like that. In other words, it's not going to be like a bad boyfriend. But although machines can only deliver performances of empathy and connection, we persist in the idea that we can draw empathy and connection from machines. Now, the reasons for this are very complicated, but let me make a, begin by saying there's one big reason right at the start. We start off physiologically wired to be vulnerable. Why? We are programmed to respond to faces and voices. An expressive machine face, either on a robot or on a screen-based computer program, puts us, it's like we're, you know, turns on part of our brains and it puts us on a landscape where we seek recognition and we feel we can get it. We want that face or voice to see us, know us, recognize us. We are triggered to seek empathy from that face or, vo or voice. In other words, we are triggered to seek empathy from an object that has none to give. So for years I've studied this. I've worked with people interacting with sociable robots, robots that could mirror your gestures. That's what they call sociable robots. They mirror your gestures. They make eye contact. They track your motion. They, they light up all the parts of the brain that, are, that think it wants to seek uh, empathy from an object like that. And one of them, a robot called Kismet, could also show facial expression and speak, although it didn't speak um, um, meaningful things, it spoke a kind of babble um, with an emotional cadence that captured the prosody of human speech. So if you said something that sounded angry, it would say something back that sounded angry. If you sounded like you asked a question, it would respond in a kind of appropriate cadence. So it had a kind of feeling of engagement that even went one step further. What it actually said had no meaning, but the sound came out warm or inquiring or concerned. The convincing imitation of understanding is impressive and can be a lot of fun if you think of these encounters as theater, as progress toward understanding speech, I mean, there are so many dimensions 
on which this is thrilling and interesting work. But robots are now being proposed as more than that, as companions and coaches and friends that will live with us and talk with us for real. In other words, we're at a different point now. It's not that these are being proposed as, as theater or as jokes or as you know, things to you know, put at the World's Fair or as demos. These are now being pr proposed as objects in your home if you're lonely or your child is lonely or needs babysitting for real. And then for me, something, a different set of issues kicks in. Because I saw children come to Kismet hoping for the robot's recognition and sometimes becoming bereft when there was none on offer. Estelle is 12, let me give you a case study. She comes to Kismet wanting a conversation. She was lonely, her parents were divorced. Her time with Kismet made her feel special because she was meeting a robot who would listen just to her. On the day of Estelle's visit, Kismet has a problem. Um, she's not at her, Kismet, I shouldn't say she, Kismet is not at her vocal best. Um, at the end of a disappointing session, Estelle and the small team of researchers who've been working with Estelle go back to the room where we interview the children before and after they meet the robots. And Estelle begins to eat the juice and the crackers and the cookies that we've left out as snacks. And she doesn't stop, not until we ask her to please leave some food for the other children. Then she stops, but only briefly. She begins to eat again hurriedly as we wait for the car service that will take her back to her after-school program. So we try to talk to Estelle while she's so upset. She's still eating. And as she sees it, Kismet does not like her. The robot began to talk with her and then turned away. We try to explain to Estelle that this isn't the case. The problem had been technical. But Estelle is not convinced. From her point of view, she has failed on her most important day. And as she leaves, she takes four boxes of cookies from the supply closet and stuffs them into her backpack. And we don't stop her. But exhausted, my little team reconvenes at a nearby coffee shop. And we ask ourselves a hard question. Can a broken robot break a child? We wouldn't be concerned with the ethics of having a child play with a broken copy of Microsoft Word or a torn Raggedy Ann doll. A word processing program is there to do an instrumental thing. If it does worse than usual on a particular day, well, that leads to frustration, but no more but a program that encourages you to connect emotionally with it, that starts to be a different matter. And that's what these robots are about. How is a broken kismet, because I'm asked this all the time, I'm anticipating your question, how is a broken kismet different than a broken doll? A broken doll, a doll, encourages children to project their own stories and their own agendas onto a passive object. But sociable robots are alive enough to have their own agendas. Children attach to them not with the psychology of projection, but with the psychology of relational engagement, much more in the way 
they attach to people. As a child sees it, if a robot turns away, it wanted to. That's why children consider winning the heart of a sociable robot to be a personal achievement. You've gotten something, you've gotten something lovable to love you. They react as though they have faced another person and there is room for new hurt. So the important question here isn't about the risks of broken robots. Rather, we should ask emotionally, what positive thing would we have given to these children? What positive thing would we have given to these children if the robots had been working perfectly, if the robots had been up to form, in top form? For a lonely child, a conversational robot will not be rejecting. It's a place to entrust confidence. But what children really need is not the guarantee that an inanimate object will simulate acceptance. They need relationships that will teach them real mutuality, real caring, and real empathy. But even kismet on its best day cannot hold up its end of an empathic connection because no machine can. So this is the place where the professor and me you know, wants to say, if you leave with one like thing, leave with that. That no, it's not because the machine was broken that things went wrong. The machine on its best day cannot offer empathic connection. And if you care about that, you shouldn't be giving robots to children, because that's what they will look for in machines that promise empathic connection. And then now I'm going to be talking about the consequences of looking for empathic connection in an object that has none to give, because psychologically you are not on a happy, you are not on a happy trajectory. So when all of this and irony emerges, even as we treat machines as if they're hu almost human, we develop habits, and this is well known to you, that have us treating human beings as almost machines. To take a simple example, this is my favorite example because it's so banal, we, re we regularly put people on pause in the middle of a conversation in order to check our phones. And when we talk to people who were not paying attention to us, it's a kind of preparation for talking to uncomprehending machines. Because when people give us less, talking to machines doesn't seem as much of a downgrade. I called my last book, you know, why do we ask more of machines and less of each other? I mean, that's kind of a, you know, sort of a, a thank you. Um, we want technology to step up as we ask people to step back. People are lonely and fear intimacy, and robots seem ready at hand. And we're ready for their company if we forget what intimacy is. And having nothing to forget, our children learn new rules for when it's appropriate to talk to a machine. So here's another case study, a, a very interesting case study. Stephanie is 40. She's a real estate agent in Rhode Island. And her 10-year-old daughter, Tara, is a perfectionist, always the good girl, sensitive to any suggestion of criticism. Recently, Tara has begun to talk to Siri. It's not surprising that children like Siri. There's just enough inventiveness in Siri's responses to make children feel that someone might be listening. 
And if they're afraid of judgment from parents or friends, Siri is safe. So Tara expresses anger to Siri that she doesn't show to her parents or friends with whom she's trying to play the part of the perfect child. So her mom wonders if talking to Siri is perhaps a good thing. Certainly more honest conversation, she tells me, than Tara is having with the adults in her life. This is happening a lot, children talking to Siri. It's a thought worth looking at more closely because it's surely positive for Tara to be discovering feelings that she censors for other audiences. But what Tara is having with Siri is not a conversation at all. Tara is using the robot as a tool that enables her to express anger, but no one is listening. Now, what's the problem with that? You could say, well, that's good. Isn't that venting? Isn't that, you know, what's the problem here? Here's the problem. Talking to, Siri, talking to Siri leaves Tara vulnerable because she's getting the idea that there's something wrong with her feelings because they are something that people can't handle. She's persisting in her current idea that pretend perfection is all that other people want from her or can accept from her. Instead of learning that people can value how she really feels, Tara is learning that it's easier not to deal with people at all. If Tara can be herself only with a robot, she may grow up believing that only a robot, only an object, can tolerate her truth. What Tara is doing, and this is my debate with the robot trains you for other things model, what Tara is doing is not training for relating to people. For that, Tara needs to learn that you can attach to people with trust, you have to make some mistakes, you have to risk an open conversation, you have to get a little hurt, you have to learn how to rebound, you have to be with somebody gentle. That's how you learn that kind of stuff. Her talks with the inanimate are taking her in completely another direction. She's being taken to a world without risk and without caring. So when I voice my misgivings about pursuing such conversations, I often get this reaction. If people say they would be happy talking to a robot, if they want a friend they can never disappoint, if they don't want to face embarrassment or vulnerability, why do I care? Why not turn this question around, is my response to that, and ask, why don't we all care? Why don't we all care that when we pursue these conversations, we're chasing after a fantasy? Why don't we think we deserve more? Why don't we think we can have more? In part, we convince ourselves that we don't need more, that we're comfortable with what machines provide. And then we begin to see a life in which we never fear judgment or embarrassment or vulnerability as perhaps a good thing. Perhaps what machine talk provides is progress on the path toward a better way of being in the world. Perhaps these machine conversations are better than anything. The idea has passed to a new generation. Robots offer relationship without risk, and nothing bad is going to happen. From having a robot as a friend, or as that first girl imagines it, a romantic partner. But there are some assumptions here that are worthy of challenge. Because although 
Always available robot chatter is a way not to feel alone. We will be alone when we're talking to these robots. We'll be engaged in as-if conversation. And what if practice makes perfect and we forget what real conversation is and why it matters? When I watch the ads for Jibo and all the pictures of people casually talking to Jibo and chatting with this is the home, the new home robot, having these conversations with Jibo and chatting with Jibo. And you know, what if you forget the difference between the, these chats and what it is to chat with someone who knows and understands you and understands what you're talking about in the context of a human life? So it was in the late 1990s that I first met computers that presented themselves as having feelings and needing care. And that was, that was those virtual pets, the Tamagotchis and the Furbies, that asked to be cared for and behaved as though it mattered. And it turned out that nurturance was a killer app. And what I mean by that is that once we take care of digital creatures or teach or amuse them, we become attached to them and then behave as though the creatures cares for us in return. And what are children learning in those early exercises when they turn towards machines as though the machines cared about them and turn towards the machines as confidence, as confidence? One 15-year-old boy remarks that every person is limited by his or her life experience, but robots can be programmed with a limited amount of stories. So in his mind, as confidants, the robots win on expertise. And tellingly, they also win on reliability. He says his parents are divorced. He's seen a lot of fighting at home. He says, and this theme comes up often, people are risky, robots are safe. If he talks to robots about his problems, the kind of reliability they will provide is emotional reliability. And it wasn't my place since this was a research interview to tell him that that emotional reliability came from their having no emotions at all. So another case, I'm gonna go quickly through it, a 17-year-old uh, who wonders how he'd feel if a true bot in one of his games wanted to be his friends. He goes to a school where kids are very tough. He's, they wanted him to steal something, he did steal something and now he's nervous around them. He, he looks forward to having a, a friend who, you know, would, would be less, less demanding. And he says, uh, if it asked me, if it talked to me nice and talked nice back to him, um, it would be my true friend. That's his test for friendship. To be a friend, you have to act like a friend, like a natural person. And, um, uh, the prospect, as he puts it, seems relaxing. And again, that's the robotic moment. Relaxing to a 17-year-old who's having trouble with a rough crowd at school. He's not a philosopher. He hasn't thought through the Turing test. He just thinks it would be relaxing to have a robot friend who's not a thug. It's not upon us because we've built artificial intelligences that are able to act as confidants. It's come because we've so degraded what we demand of conversation that we'll accept what a machine can offer, the performance of companionate interest. So all these kids who say that they'll let a machine take care 
of a conversation about dating means that any kind of larger conversation about empathy, about caring, about relationships in a date won't take place if you're not having it with your parents, but you're having it with a robot, because it can't. Because with a computer, the best you'll get is as-if emotions and an as-if relationship. But there's also this. The more we talk about conversation as something machines can do, the more we end up devaluing conversations with people because they don't offer what machines provide. The most important job of childhood and adolescence is to learn attachment and trust in other people. This happens through human attention, presence, and conversation. When we think about putting children in the care of robots, we forget that what children really need is to learn that adults are there for them in a stable and consistent way, and no robot has that to give. When children talk with people, they come to recognize over time, over a long period of time, how vocal inflection, facial expression, and bodily movement flow together seamlessly and fluidly, and they learn how human emotions play in layers, again, seamlessly and fluidly. These are things that we forget when we think about children spending any significant amount of time talking with machines, looking into robotic faces, trusting in their care. Why would we play with fire when it comes to such difficult matters? There's a general pattern in our discussion of machine capability that I've called from better than nothing to better than anything. And here's how it works. We begin with resignation, with the idea that machine companionship is better than nothing, as in, there are no people for these jobs. There are no people for elder care jobs. There aren't enough teachers, there aren't enough babysitters, etc. From there, we exalt the possibility of what simulation can offer until, in time, we start to talk as though what we'll get from the artificial may actually be better than what life can ever provide. And so here are some quotes from what happens when people talk about why they'd rather have a robot than a person. Child care workers might be abusive. Nurses or well-meaning mothers might make mistakes. They might not be clever. They might not have even finished high school. They aren't well-educated enough. Children say that a robotic dog will never get sick and can be turned off when you want to put your attention elsewhere. In other words, it's kind of friction-free. It's less demanding. And if you want, you can arrange for your robotic dog to never mature, to always remain a puppy. And as one nine-year-old put it, people love puppies. And then critically, particularly for older people, a robotic pet will never die. Older people hate when their dogs and pets, cats die. A robotic dog, says one woman, won't die suddenly, abandon you, and make you very sad. So fantasies of artificial being allow us to imagine a friction-free version of companionship, one in our control, perhaps literally. And part of what makes our new technologies of connection so seductive is that they respond to our fantasies, our wishes, that we will always be heard, really four wishes that digital technology offers us, that we will always be heard, that we can put our attention wherever we want it to be, 
and that we will never have to be alone. And these three wishes lead to a fourth wish, a fourth implied fantasy, which is they will never have to be bored. And if you think about those four fantasies, those four wishes, they really describe a relationship with a robot. Because the robot would always be at attention. It would be tolerant of wherever your attention might take you. It certainly wouldn't mind if you interrupted your conversation to answer a text or take a call. And it would never abandon you, although there's the question of whether it was ever really there in the first place. And as for boredom, well, it would do its best that boredom for you would be completely like a thing in the past. When roboticists show moments of captivating moments, when people are happy to engage with sociable robots, the tendency is to show these off as though a small triumph is presented. We did it. We got a person to be happy with a machine. And there are many such moments online. But this is an experiment in which people, you, are the re-engineered experimental subject. Because we are learning, we are teaching people how to take as-if conversations with a machine seriously. Our performative conversations because we are performing for the machine, molding our conversation to what the machine will allow us to do, begin to change what we think of as conversation. We practice something new, something that the machine allows us to do with it, but we are the ones who are changing. So do we like what we're changing into? Do we want to get better at it? In the course of my research, there was one robotic moment, and I've told this story many times, that I've never forgotten because it changed my mind. I'm going to quickly just mention it again. Um, it, it was so decisive for me. I, uh, I'd, I'd been bringing robots, these sociable robots, to nursing homes because there's so many of them are designed for elder care. That scene is the big market for people, you know, not enough workers, robots will step in and do the job. And there was this one woman who had lost her son who began to talk to the robot about having lost her son. And the robot was programmed to make gestures of understanding. And she felt this robot understood her. And everybody around was celebrating this moment that, that, that the woman felt understood. And I, this pretend empathy, but, but robots can't empathy. They don't empathize. They don't face death. They don't know life. So when this woman took comfort in her robot companion, I didn't find it amazing. I, I felt we had abandoned her. And being part of the scene was one of the most wrenching moments in my then 15 years of research on sociable robots. For me, it was a turning point. I felt the enthusiasm of my team, I felt the enthusiasm of the staff and the attendants. There were so many people there to help, but we all stood back, a room of spectators now, only there to hope that this elder would bond with a machine. It seemed that we had all had a stake in outsourcing the thing we do best, understanding each other, taking care of each other. That day in the nursing home, I was troubled by how we allowed ourselves to be 
sidelined, turned into spectators by a robot that understood nothing and the idea of progress. And on that day, did not reflect poorly on the robot. That robot was working perfectly. It, it reflected poorly on us and how we think about older people when they tell us the stories of their lives. Over the past decade, when the idea of older people and robots has come up, the emphasis has been put on whether the older person will talk to the robot. All the articles are about, will the older people talk to this robot? Will the robot facilitate their talking? Will the robot be persuasive enough to do that? But when you think about the moment of life that we're considering, it's not just that the older people are supposed to be talking. Younger people are supposed to be listening. That is the human compact. That is what we owe each other. That's the compact between generations. I was once told that, that is our humanity. I, I was once told that some older cultures have a saying that when a young person misbehaves, it's because, quote, they had no one to tell them the old stories. When we celebrate robot listeners that cannot listen, we show too little interest in what our elders have to say. We build machines that guarantee that human stories will fall upon deaf ears. Right now, we work on the premise that putting a robot in to do a job is always better than nothing. But what about if this, that is the premise of sociable robotics. But what if that premise is really flawed? If you have a problem with care and companionship and you try to solve it with a robot, you may not try to solve it with your friends, your family, and your community. That's the history of technology, that when we think we can solve something with technology, we move away from thinking we need to solve it with friends and family and community. So the as-if self of a robot calling forth the as-if self of a person performing for it, it's not helpful for children as they grow up. It's not helpful for adults as they try to live authentically. And to say that it is just the thing for an older person who's at the point where he or she is trying to make sense of their life, to me, that is demeaning. They, of all people, should be given occasions to talk about their real lives filled with real losses and real loves to someone who knows who these things are. So I think we're positioned to have these conversations. I want to be part of getting these conversations going. That's why I'm doing this writing. I'm doing this research. But sometimes I fear they may not happen. As I was concluding work on Reclaiming Conversation, I attended a large international meeting that I won't name that had a session called Disconnect to Connect. And there, psychologists, scientists, technologists, and members of the business community considered our effective lives in the digital age. There was widespread agreement that there's an empathy gap among young people, I spoke about this the other day, that have grown up emotionally disconnected while constantly connected to phones, games, and social media. Studies had shown a 40% drop in measurable markers of empathy over the past 25 years, and there was much enthusiasm in the room for guess what? For how technology might help. Now, for people who show little empathy, 
there will be empathy apps to teach compassion and consideration. There will be computer games that will reward collaboration rather than violence. The idea is that we've gotten ourselves into trouble with technology, and technology will help us get out of it. Where we once dreamed of robots that would take care of our physical vulnerabilities, now apps will tend to our emotional lapses. If we've become cold toward each other, apps will warm us. If we've forgotten how to listen to each other, apps will teach us to be more attentive. But looking to technology to repair the empathy gap seems to me an ironic rejoinder to a problem we perhaps didn't need to have in the first place and to a problem we perhaps don't need to have in the first place. I don't think it's too late. Sometimes I think it's easier to build an app than to have a conversation. Sometimes I think it's easier to build an app than to have a conversation. When I think of parents who are drawn to their email instead of a dinner conversation with their kids, I'm not convinced that there's a technological fix for the emotional distance that follows. Yes, we should design technology to take account of our vulnerabilities. For example, we should design phones that release us rather than try to hold us. I'm very interested in collaborating with industry to, to think about phones that are better designed, that are designed with our vulnerabilities in mind. But to bridge the empathy gap, I think of things that people can do. I think of parents who experiment with sacred spaces, no technology in the kitchen, at meals, in the car. I think of parents who experiment with technology timeouts to reclaim conversation with children and each other. I think of college students and CEOs who put their phones away to pay full attention to friends and colleagues. I think of the new enthusiasm for meditation as a way to be present in the moment and to discover the world within. When people give themselves the time for self-reflection, they come to a deeper regard for what they can offer others. The moment is right. We had a love affair with a technology that seemed magical. We have it still. But like great magic, it worked by commanding our attention and not letting us see anything but what the magician wanted us to see. And now we are ready to reclaim our attention. We are ready to reclaim conversation. Caring machines challenge our most basic notions of what it means to commit to each other. Empathy apps claim they will tutor us back to being fully human. The proposals for these objects can bring us to the end of our forgetting about what it means to be a person. To get back to where I begin, the notion of human companionship, now we have to ask, if we become more human when we give our most human jobs away. It's a moment to reconsider that delegation. To reconsider that delegation, it is not a moment 
to reject technology. It is not a moment to reject technology. It's a moment to find ourselves. Thank you. Do we have time for one or two questions? Or Great. Yes. Andy Revkin. Um, I'm a longtime blogger, and I do online conversations of that sort, too. But, and I love what you're digging in on here. One thing that was interesting to me, maybe it's in your book, we'll find out, is, um, is the discomfort that you feel when you saw the cheering about the, the person reacting to the, the robot, uh, that in one thing that it's the revealing, old person or the child. Well, any of these situations where essentially it's revealing that, that the veneer of what we define as humanness is very thin, and it's over a large thing that we call the human animal. That we basically are a machine. A lot of us is programmed, and it's revealing our internal programming as much as anything else. The fact that there's a lot of discomfort in that, I think, sometimes that we are biological creatures with programming, and that they've succeeded in harnessing that or meeting that, that internal machine, is, the, is that part of what makes this feel weird inside? No, I'm, I'm very comfortable that the way in which we signal to each other is by very primitive programmed mechanisms. That seems uh, a very natural way that the evolution of a m machine like us would have worked. The, the difference is is that we have lived the arc of a human, this machine has lived the arc of a human life and actually has something to give to a conversation that should be about meaning. So when I trigger, when I trigger connection, talk to me, I have the goods to deliver because I actually have a child or wanted a child or know what a child is or have held a child in my arms and the death of a child, I understand something about its consequences. If a robot knows how to signal, talk to me about child death, nothing of, of authentic mutuality can follow. That's what bothers me. It's not that I'm, I, I'm not at all, to me this doesn't raise the issue of, oh, are we machines, oh my God, that's so terrible. I'm fine with that. It has to do with the authenticity of the conversation that follows. Uh, thank you for your comments. I've uh, followed your writing for many years. Oh, that's so nice. It's lovely to hear you. I, I also think it's wonderful that you're at a place like MIT. Um, can we just go back to the beginning of your talk uh, the email saying, I'm sorry, or I hate you, or I'm breaking up with you. Yeah. How do you respond to that, that our most difficult, most personal conversations, messages, are often now delivered by email or text um, when a one-on-one one -on -one conversation is necessary, in my view? Necessary, but difficult. Oh, difficult, for sure. Yeah, well, but I mean... And, and it's a cop-out that we, we say face or whatever. I, you've answered your question. People have remarkably little to say when you say, everybody says breaking up by text is bad. And then you say, have you ever broken up by text? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's something where we, we permit ourselves in this domain 
we've given ourselves a tool that is just absolutely, you know, gets us out of the things everybody doesn't want to do. And we allow ourselves, it's, it's, it's allowing ourselves a, um, uh, the question, I think the question is, and the reason I'm somewhat optimistic, is that you begin to see the cost, you even begin to see the cost in business situations of all of this avoiding, <laughs> avoiding a real conversation, right? All this, in business situations, you begin to see business people saying, if, if, you don't, if, you don't, if you don't apply, if you don't, if you don't apologize face to face, I will literally take you by the, you know, the scruff of your neck and bring you into the office. You've got to, because you've got to learn how to, one, one person said something like, um, a person who doesn't know how to apologize is like a person who doesn't know how to um, drive backwards in a car. In other words, they don't know how to drive. And we're not, we're not developing those skills. But, but the motivation is the motivation. It's hard to apologize. It's hard to apologize, but the thing about not apologizing, the question you have to ask, is what are the skills that you learn? It's not just politeness. I think that's a very important part of this research project, is what are the skills you learn by apologizing? It's not just politeness. You learn to see the other person's pain. You learn something about empathy. The other person gets to see your um, remorse. So they're in the process of learning something about compassion and empathy. You get to sort of bond on that question. So you're learning something about how two people can form a relationship over feeling bad about mutual action. You get, I mean, you get to have, you know, it's, 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 it's empathy 101. And then the compassion response triggers forgiveness, and then you kind of can move on from there. It was, it's, 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 it's that an apology is a training ground for a lot of things that human beings use in the rest of life when they're not apologizing. And so in all of these things where we skip conversation, the question, what I've found so extraordinary in doing the research is the question is always, what is the thing, what is the sort of human skill that we're just kind of skipping over by skipping over this. And it always turns out to be something like monumental. You know, like, let's not have students go to classes. Let's just have them be able to do class online. Well, that's good. That'll save money. That'll be so cool. Well, it turns out they don't learn all kinds of interactions. They don't, they don't learn all kinds of interactions, very casual interactions that they learned in classrooms. Um, zero minutes remaining. Okay, so that's that's my last. I think that's my last question. But I'm I am so on the I'm so on the program of running around the country talking about conversation that this is definitely not your last chance to. De definitely, me talking about conversation is not. This is not your last chance to ask me questions. I thank you so much. Thank you for being. I hope you like the book. Thank you for being my first readers. I'm really. It's a very big moment for an author, and I'm very happy. That was Sherry Turkle recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2015.
The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.